Chapter Four of the Straighten Street Affair by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter the Fourth, Facing the Music. Do you seriously mean to say that you have no knowledge of me? I demanded angrily, looking the millionaire straight in the face. Yes, sir, he replied. I seriously mean what I say. But tell me, he demanded resentfully, why are you here to claim acquaintance with me? Do you really deny you have ever seen me before? I asked, astounded at his barefaced pretense of ignorance. Never to my knowledge, replied the sallow-faced man whose countenance I so well recollected. Then you forgot a certain night not so long ago when I was called into your house in Straighton Street, and you chatted confidentially with me about your wife and your little son? My dear sir, he cried, whatever do you mean? I have never seen you at Straighton Street, and I have certainly never discussed my wife with you. I stood aghast at his continued denial. But you did, I asserted, and there was another matter, a matter about which I must question you, the— Ah, I see, he interrupted. You're here to blackmail me, eh? Well, let me hear the worst and across his rather oriental face there spread a mocking, half-amused smile. "'I am not a blackmailer,' I protested angrily. "'I want no money, only to know the truth.' "'Of what?' "'Well, the truth concerning the death of Miss Gabrielle Engledew.' "'The death of Miss Gabrielle Engledew?' he cried. "'I really don't understand you, Mr—Mr. Garfield?' At the mention of the name I saw that he started, but almost imperceptibly. The man was certainly a most perfect actor, and his protestations of ignorance were indeed well feigned. "'Then you actually deny all knowledge of the young lady?' I said. "'I know no lady of that name. But she is your niece.' "'I have only one niece, Lady Shelford.' "'And how old is she?' He hesitated for a few moments. Then he answered, "'Oh, she must be about thirty-five. She married Shelford about ten years ago.' and she lives at Wickingham Grange near Malton, in Yorkshire. And you have no other niece? None, I assure you. But why do you ask such a question? You puzzle me. Not more than you puzzle me, Mr. De Gex, I replied with pique. It would be so much easier if you would be frank and open with me. My dear sir, you seem to me to have a bee in your bonnet about something or other. Tell me, now, what is it? Simply that you know me very well, but you deny it. You never thought that I should make this unwelcome reappearance. Your appearance here as a mad-brained person is certainly unwelcome, he retorted. You first tell me that you visited me at Straighton Street. Well, you may have been in the servants' quarters for all I know, and— Please do not be insulting, I cried angrily. I have no intention of offering you an insult, sir, but your attitude is so very extraordinary. You speak of a girl named Engledew, that was the name, I think and allege that she is my niece. Why? Because the young lady is dead. She died under most suspicious circumstances, and you know all about it, I said bluntly. Oh, perhaps you will allege that I am a murderer next, he laughed, as though enjoying the joke. It is no laughing matter, I cried in fury. Why not? I find all your allegations most amusing. And across his dark handsome face there spread a good-humoured smile. His was a face that I could never forget. At one moment its expression was kindly and full of bonhomie. The next it was hard and unrelenting, 
the face of an eccentric criminal. To me they are the reverse of amusing, I said. I allege that on the night of Wednesday, November the 7th last, I was passing your house in Straten Street, Park Lane, when your man Horton invited me inside, and, well, well, I need not describe what occurred there, for you recollect only too vividly, without a doubt. But what I demand to know is why you asked me in, and what happened to me after you gave me that money. Money? I gave you money? he cried. Why, man alive, you're dreaming. You must be. I'm not dreaming at all. It is a hard fact. Indeed, I still have the money, five thousand pounds in banknotes. Oswald de Gex looked at me strangely. His sallow face colored slightly, and his lips compressed. I had cornered him. A little further firmness, and he would no doubt admit that we had met at Straten Street. Look here, Mr. Garfield, he said in a changed voice. This is beyond a joke. You now tell me that I presented you with five thousand pounds. I do, and I repeat it. But why should I give you this sum? Because I assisted you in the commission of a crime. That's a lie, he declared vehemently. Forgive me for saying so, but I can only think that you are not quite in your right mind. I have not been in my right mind for a month or more, thanks to your deep plotting, I retorted sharply. Further, I am telling the truth, as I shall later on tell it before a court of law. I intend to solve the mystery of the death of Gabrielle Engledew. Well, I will not hinder you, he laughed grimly. You mean that you will not assist me? I mean that I have no knowledge of any such person, nor have I any knowledge of you, he said. A perfect stranger, you come here, present your card, and at once start a series of most serious allegations against me the chief of them being that I gave you five thousand pounds for some assistance which you refuse to describe. If I tell you, you will only deny it, Mr. de Gex, I exclaimed bitterly. So what is the use? None. In fact, I don't see that any object is to be gained in prolonging this interview, was his quick retort. If, as you say, I gave you five thousand, which I certainly never did, then what more can you want? I, however, suspect that the five thousand exists only in your own imagination. But I have the sum intact, in a drawer at my home in London. It would be of interest to see it. Are they the same notes which you say I gave you? The same, I answered, and then I went on to tell him how I had awakened to find myself in Saint-Maillot, and how the French police had taken possession of the money found upon me. Ah! he exclaimed at last. It all seems quite clear now. You've had a bad illness, my dear fellow. Your brain has become unbalanced, and you are now subject to hallucinations. I regret my hard words, Mr. Garfield, he added in a kindly tone. I also regret that your mental state is what it is. I desire no sympathy, I protested, raising my voice angrily. All I want to know is the truth. I have already told you that, as far as I am personally concerned. No, you have denied everything and now you try to treat me as one demented i declared in a fury the existence of the banknotes you gave me are sufficient evidence against you i think not first i doubt if they exist anywhere save in your imagination secondly if they do then someone else may have given them to you you did i would recognize you among ten thousand men on the night in question you wore a dinner jacket and now you are in grey that is all the difference. Well, have it your own way, 
he replied smiling, though I could see that he had become palpably perturbed by my allegations. Whatever had been administered to me, some dope or other, no doubt, it had been intended that I should be cast adrift on the continent as a semi-imbecile. It was that fact which maddened me. The poor girl might not have been his niece, of course, but whoever she had been, this man had had some very strange and distinct motive in getting rid of her. What it was I had vowed to discover. It was apparent that de Gex was anxious to get rid of me. Indeed, as we stood together in that fine old room, across the marble floor of which strayed long beams of sunlight, the door opened and a pretty woman came in. She was dressed to go out, and asked, "'Will you be long, dear?' It was the beautiful Mrs. de Gex. In an instant I recognized her by the many photographs I had seen in the picture papers. "'No, I'll be with you in a minute, dear. Is the car there?' he asked. "'It's been there a quarter of an hour, and if we don't go now we shall be late in meeting Hilda at the station,' she said, glancing at me with undisguised annoyance. Then she left, closing the door after her. Across my brain ran strange thoughts. I recollected his words in Straten Street regarding his spiteful wife when I had been called in to listen to his matrimonial troubles. But husband and wife now appeared to be on quite amicable and even affectionate terms. I confess that I was still bewildered, as you, my reader, in whom I am here reposing confidence, would I believe have been, had you found yourself in similar circumstances. I see that your wife is eager to go out, I said, but I fear I must, before I go, press for a direct answer to my questions, Mr. De Gex. My dear sir, I have answered them. What more can I say? he exclaimed with affected dismay. A very great deal. You can tell me the truth. I have, he snapped. Who this girl Engledue is, I have not a ghost of an idea. Are you certain she is dead? Positive. I saw her lying dead in the room which adjoins your library. What? My wife's room? he cried. Oh, come, let us finish all this silly talk. When you are at least frank with me. I am. But do you deny that the young lady Gabrielle Engledue died there? Do you not recollect that we both stood at her deathbed? Don't talk such piffle, de Gex snapped, no doubt believing in the end that he would convince me of his ignorance of the whole tragedy. Whatever had happened on that November night was, no doubt, to the distinct advantage of the wealthy man who stood before me. Yet I was faced with a difficulty. He had uttered that most ugly word, blackmail. Suppose he called the police and accused me of it. His word, the word of a wealthy financier, would no doubt be taken by a jury before my own. On the other hand, I had up my sleeve a trump card, the death and cremation of the mysterious Gabrielle Engledue. Probably the poor victim was poisoned, hence the object of her cremation to remove all traces of it. Yet opposed to that, there still remained my own most serious offense opposing as a medical man and giving a forged certificate concerning the cause of death. Yes, I was only too keenly alive to my own very precarious position, yet I was emboldened by de Gex's agitation and the pallor in his sallow cheeks. He was, no doubt, feeling very uneasy, and even a millionaire can feel uneasy when faced with a witness of his own offense. Mr. De Gex, I am not talking rubbish, I said in all seriousness. You appear to forget that night when your wife deserted your son in Westbourne Grove, 
and then laughed at you over the telephone from a public call office. He looked at me very straight with those deep-set eyes of his. Really, he exclaimed, that is quite a new feature in the affair. Let me see, what did I tell you? Your man Horton invited me, a mere passer-by, into your house in Straten Street. He said you were very much worried and asked if I would meet you. Why, I cannot imagine. When we met you were very vague in your statements, and at first I could not for the life of me discover why I had been asked to meet you. But soon you confided to me the fact that your wife, being spiteful towards you, had abandoned your heir, little Oswald, in Westbourne Grove, and had then rung up from a call office telling you to find him. "'Bosh, my dear fellow, bosh!' was his reply. First, you were never there, and secondly, I've never complained of my wife's behavior to anyone, certainly not to a stranger. You did to me. I certainly am not dreaming. But you have already admitted that you've been in hospital in Semenyok suffering from loss of memory. My memory has now fortunately been restored, I replied. Distorted, without a doubt. You would never travel all the way from London to relate these absolutely silly stories to me if you were in your right senses, my dear Mr. Garfield, he said. They're not silly stories, but hard, indisputable facts, I declared resentfully. The millionaire had assumed an air of nonchalance, for, leaning against a big old buell table, he took out a cigarette from his gold case and slowly lit it, after which he said, "'You must, I think, really excuse me. We have to go down into Florence to meet my sister-in-law, who is coming from London. I'm afraid, Mr. Garfield, that I cannot help you any further.' "'You mean you won't?' "'Not at all. If I knew anything of this young lady who, you said, died in my wife's bedroom in Straten Street, and at whose bedside you and I stood together, I would tell you. But I really don't. He tossed his cigarette hastily out of the open window. No, he added, I won't hear any more. I haven't the time or the inclination to listen to the wanderings of any insane person. I've had enough. And so have I, I retorted. You are trying to mislead me by affecting ignorance of my very existence, but I don't intend that you shall escape, I added, again raising my voice. Hush, please, he said in a calmer tone. My wife may overhear. I don't care, I cried in desperation. You never dreamed that I should arise against you as I have. You are not fair towards me. If you revealed to me in confidence the reason you gave me that bribe of five thousand pounds, then I, on my part, would have played the straight game. "'My dear sir, play whatever game you like. It is immaterial to me whether straight or crooked. I don't know anything about what you have been talking, and you have only wasted your breath and got out of temper for nothing.' Again I looked him straight in the face. There was no doubt that the strain of his clever denials were telling upon him. His dark complexion had paled. In his eyes there was a fierce haunted look as that of a man who was straining every effort to remain calm under the gravest circumstances. "'I have no game to play,' I declared. "'I only demand the truth. Why was I invited into your house in Straten Street to be present as witness at the poor girl's death?' "'I don't know. Find out for yourself, my dear Mr. Garfield,' laughed the rich man. "'I have no time to discuss this silly affair further. I'm sorry you have troubled to come out from London to see me but really yours has been a fool's errand, and he turned towards the door. A fool's errand, I echoed. I am no fool, and my errand is in deep earnestness. You may try to befool me, but I tell you that I will leave no stone unturned to solve the problem which you alone can explain. 
"'Well, get along with your work,' he laughed in open defiance. "'I have no further time to waste.' And glancing at his watch, he opened the door and abruptly left me. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com